Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Be More Health Talks, which is the health department's community forum on health disparities, health and wellness in Baltimore. I'm Dr. Lena Wen and I am the Baltimore City Health Commissioner joined in our studios at 1001 East Fayette, our glamorous studios at the Baltimore City Health Department, um, to discuss a, um, an important topic of gun violence as a public health issue together with our esteemed guests who I will introduce shortly. As all of you know, this is our, um, our Be More Health Talks, our, our citywide efforts to, dis to reduce healthcare disparities and health disparities. It's an opportunity for us to break down silos, to share and collaborate around the work that different organizations are doing, and also to shed light on topics that we don't normally think about as health and healthcare issues, but that are important for us as a community to discuss to, um, to highlight and to, um, and to take action on. If you have questions or comments to share during the talk, please call 443-615-0908, 443-615-0908, or join us on Twitter, hashtag BeMoreHealthTalks, hashtag BeMoreHealthTalks, all one word. If you missed our last episode, you can listen to it and all other episodes on soundcloud.com slash BeMoreHealthTalks, and we also hope that you all suggest speakers and topics to us. You can email us at bemoreheard at baltimorecity.gov. Now today we're going to be talking about gun violence as a public health issue and violence prevention strategies in Baltimore City. First, some statistics, because we always start with evidence and data here in the health department. In 2015, nationally, there were over 13,000 people who were killed by firearms. We're going to look around the table at our experts. If they disagree with these numbers, they're welcome to speak up and, and, um, and, and correct me as well. Right here in Baltimore City, we experienced 344 homicides last year alone, almost 90% of which involved firearms. And there were an additional over 600, precisely 637, non-fatal shootings. Now, we at the Baltimore City Health Department believe strongly that violence is a public health issue. It's absolutely a health issue. In the ER where I work, I see patients who are the victims of violence, who come in as victims of shooting, stabbings, who are the um, victims of assaults. And we can see that it's a health issue because it is a life and death issue. It impacts people's health and their well-being and, and, and is a major cause of disabilities. And we also know that violence is a public health issue because studies have shown that it spreads from person to person. It's like a communicable disease. But just like other diseases, it is something that has a diagnosis, it's got a preventive strategy, and it has a solution as well. There are a number of programs that are based at the health department and in the city to address violence as a, as a public health issue. Previously on our on Be More Health Talks, we have discussed Safe Streets, which is our violence prevention program, um, where we employ credible messengers to interrupt conflicts where they see it occurring. Um, we also ha have programs like Dating Matters, um, there is a, uh, a citywide collaborative called Be More for Youth that we'll get into later on during this, uh, this show as well. So you'll hear more about this and about other programs and policies from our esteemed guests. And so I'd like to now introduce our, how many are we, our, our four esteemed guests who are joining us today at our headquarters. So first I would like to introduce Councilman Brandon Scott, who represents Baltimore City Council's second district. He is the vice chair of the Public Safety Committee and also the co-founder of the 300 Men March. Welcome, Councilman Scott. Thank you for having me, ma'am. Tell us a bit more about how, um, about your work, um, about the Public Safety Committee. I know a lot has been going on this week with the DOJ report and everything, so. Just a little. Uh, this, I think that the, the key thing about the Public Safety Committee in the city is really oversight. So we know that uh, the city council, because of the unique uh, way that our police department is ran, is technically a state ag agency, doesn't have direct policy oversight over, over the police department. But uh, what we have tried to do in this term and what I look forward to doing in the next term is, is bringing back uh, a more stern and more frequent oversight of the police department. But also, you know, there are some things that we can affect through policy change, going to Annapolis and affecting things like that. But with the 300 men marches, we're strictly a violence prevention initiative. That's our sole purpose is to decrease violence in some of our neighborhoods in the city. It's great, and we'll look forward to hearing more about what these initiatives are, but you've been a tremendous leader in our city. I'm grateful to have you um, uh, continue to lead these important efforts. Thank you. 
I now like to introduce a woman whose last name I am sure I am going to mispronounce, but let me try. I'd like to introduce Jen Paliukonis, who is the president of the Marylanders to Prevent Gun Violence. Jen has told me that subsequently I could refer to her as Jen, um, or as Jen P. Um, Jen was previously the legislative director of Maryland's to, uh, Marylanders to Prevent Gun Violence. Um, I had the opportunity to join her recently at a rally that she hosted on the importance of us addressing gun violence following some of the tragedies that, that, that occurred in the last several months. Welcome, Jen. Thank you. Tell us a bit more about your organization and, and your work. So in Marylanders Frank Gun Violence, um, we are working to reduce the senseless, uh, senseless gun deaths um, around Maryland um, through education and awareness and also through legislative advocacy. Um, we're also trying to prioritize um, the gun deaths and injuries in Baltimore City uh, because too often everyday gun violence is often uh, overlooked in the conversation and discussions um, that are happening about this issue. Thank you, and thank you for raising awareness and for bringing our, the voices of our communities, the critical voices of, of our communities and parents and families into our conversations as well. Now I'd like to introduce Dr. Daniel Webster, who is the director of the Johns Hopkins <coughs> Center for Gun Policy and Research. He's also the co-director of the Johns Hopkins Center for the Prevention of Youth Violence. Dr. Webster, of course, has many other titles, but I will mention that he is one of the nations, and in fact, one of the world's leading experts on firearm policy and the prevention of gun violence. I actually um, had the opportunity to meet Dr. Webster before I took on this role in the health department. We first met at a conference, the TED Med conference, where right. I heard an extremely moving discussion um, that Dr. Webster led that he continues to lead here in Baltimore City and around the country. Welcome, Dr. Webster. Thank you. Very happy to be here and be part of this important discussion. Tell us a bit more about your work at Hopkins. Sure. So I've been on the faculty since uh, 1992, and, and before that got my doctoral degree at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Um, and I've been teaching uh, what I believe is actually the first uh, course of, on violence prevention at a school of public health since the early 90s. And um, I've had the honor to learn a great deal uh, uh, through through my direct work with the uh, Baltimore Health Department, uh, Baltimore Police Department, and, and a variety of local efforts here. Um, so while I work on state and national levels, um, my heart is in Baltimore. I learn uh, so much about this problem through the efforts in Baltimore. And, um, you know, again, my, my role principally is as a researcher to, to inform this discussion, but it's always going to be a, a co-learning process where I'm learning from the people closest to the problem. And we do very much appreciate that despite your national efforts, um, that you really have your heart here, as you said. And I know that um, so many of our agencies have been able to benefit from your hard work and your, and your team's work as well. Now last but certainly not least, I'd like to introduce someone who has recently joined the Baltimore City Health Department and not only has hit the ground running, but has really taken all of our work to a different level and has taught me a lot. I'd like to introduce Willem Kellerbroom, who is the director of the Health Department's Office of Youth Violence Prevention. Now we're very lucky to have Willem join our team. In addition to, um, to his work here, he, has, he is internationally recognized as an advocate for civil, human, women, children, and victims' rights. He's delivered hundreds of keynotes, motivational speeches. Um, he is an expert on trauma-informed care. He has consulted with the U.S. Department of Justice Office for, um, Office for Victims of Crime Training. And he has, in addition, been recognized by the White House in 2011 as a champion of change. Welcome, William. Thank you for having me. Glad to be a part of the health department. <laughs> I'd love to have you tell us a bit more about your work in the health department, the programs that you oversee. Well, you talked a little bit about uh, Safe Streets earlier and Dating Matters, focusing on uh, young people and uh, the prevention of uh, violence uh, with junior high school uh, students, elementary school students. So that work is happening. And, uh, you know, the focus for us is really about uh, going upstream and focusing on trauma and really focusing on victimization um, to, uh, to, to really do our work. And so I'm, I'm, I'm just very proud to be a part of the health department's public health approach to address violence and uh, with all of our partners. Uh, I think we are on our way to something amazing, uh, but it's going to be some challenges along the way, but I'm looking forward to them because challenges are opportunities. 
see, this is why I learned from this guy. He's <laughs> as optimistic. So especially when we're talking about issues like gun violence and homicide as we are today. Well, I'd like to remind our, our listeners that if you have questions for our guests, to tweet, hashtag Be More Health Talks Now, or call our call-in number, which again is 443-615-0908. And you can see from the esteemed group that I have assembled in our, in our executive conference room in, uh, in the health department that we're, going, we're in for a treat. I'd like to start with Dr. Webster. Can you tell us, do you agree that gun violence is a public health issue? Or have I been framing this the wrong way this entire time and you just haven't told me? Goodness, uh, if it's not a public health issue, I don't know what I've been doing with my life the past 25 years. Um, you know, it's easy to, to articulate it as a public health problem when you start with what you began the program with, Dr. Wynn, which is saying the number of lives lost, the number of individuals shot, and, and even as William noted appropriately, the tr related trauma, psychological trauma connected to that. But I, when I, I look at this at a, even a, a more critical lens and, and really, what does public health bring to this problem? If, if a lot of people die or injured or harmed by it and public health doesn't have something to offer it, then you just leave this to other entities, whether it's police or other, other systems. I firmly believe public health has important things to bring to it. As you mentioned also in your opening remarks, uh, it does act much as a contagious process, much like infectious diseases. And so we can learn from that, both in terms of how to understand it, but more importantly, how to prevent it. There are other public health models as well that we can bring to this. And public health, um, you know, usually has some combination of you're trying to change individual behavior, but uh, we're, we're trying to change environments and, and the policies matter a lot. And so we have the right group of people here to kind of touch many of those bases that, that really are what public health is about, which is creating safer, healthier environments. And I think public health has a lot to contribute to that. Thank you. What about you, Councilman Scott? What are your thoughts about this? Do you um, does it make sense to you to consider violence through this public health lens? And what and what do you see in Baltimore, especially when it comes to our youth? Well, I think that uh, what the doctor said is absolutely true, and we know that it is. I always say that uh, violence is a, is a disease like anything else, and where you look at in our society, in American society, uh, where you find high levels of gun violence, you find high levels of every other disease and every other thing that's where it's high levels of obesity, HIV, STDs, all the founts in the same area. So we know that these are public health issues because they spread, you know, amongst uh, those who are the least fortunate in our country, which most happens to be uh, young African Americans in America. So we know that the problem is, is that uh, we have not, as a country, as a city, a state, as a country, caught up to the idea of dealing with it as a public health issue. Uh, a lot of that, in my opinion, has to do with culture, you know, because there, there is a culture of violence too, but there's also a culture, uh, American culture around guns specifically, that does not allow us to look at this as a public health issue because we refuse to remember that, you know, guns do kill people and that not everyone should have a gun. And we have to have that conversation in this country or we're going to continue to have this conversation about gun violence in America as opposed to our counterparts across the world. And Councilman, what are you seeing in Baltimore City when you talk about, when you talk to community members about violence as a public health issue, about how it's a disease, what is the receptivity to that? It depends on where you are. Uh, uh, if you're talking, especially if you're talking to as a lot of times you're talking to a lot of older folks, they don't see it that way because they basically have been uh, brought up and trained to think that violence is, is, is specifically a choice and all those uh, you know, things, which it is. But if you're talking to a lot of younger folks, they have, have a, they're more open to understanding that. But people have to understand how the only way to explain the gun violence, especially in a city like Baltimore, is a public health issue because whereas when I was a kid uh, growing up in the 90s and early 2000s, when someone was shot or killed, you knew automatically what, what pretty much what it, what it was about. Nowadays, we've seen it grow to a point where sometimes the police were just blown away by the reasons that people die and it has to deal with all the other health issues. If you're someone mm -hmm. who has high blood pressure, you're someone who has lead paint poisoning, who's someone who may have an STD, who is not eating healthy, who 
doesn't know how to deal with the mental health issues and aggression issues that you have, and you have this dispute, mind dispute with someone over a dollar or over a woman or over a piece of clothing or over a road rape incident, that can mean someone's life. And we're seeing that happening more and more frequently because of all the other public health issues that we haven't dealt with. And now they're intertwining with this violence and this culture and this public health issue of violent violence. We often talk about the social determinants of health when it comes to people's life expectancies. We talk about, in previous Be More Health Talks episodes, for example, we talked about how it's disingenuous for us to tell someone that they need to eat healthier if they live in a food desert without access to transportation or, or healthy options. It's disingenuous to tell someone to exercise when, they don't, when there's no recess for our children and no, nowhere safe for, for, for them to go. And as has been mentioned very eloquently, it's the same maps. You can almost replace the maps in our city with any title, whether it's drug overdoses, whether it's poverty, whether it's homicide or really lead poisoning, and they all look the same. It's areas with concentrated poverty that are the most affected by all these other issues. And so I appreciate, Councilman, your focus on the social determinants of gun violence, if you will, and talk about how it's not just, it's never something in isolation. It's also the rest of the community with, um, with that as well. You know, I know, William, in your, um, in your, um, your introduction, you mentioned the tie between violence and trauma. Um, can you go into a bit more about that and how it relates to this conversation about violence as a public health issue? Yeah, I, that's, that's, it's a very interesting. In fact, uh, Dr. Richard Malika, uh, one of the experts in trauma, once said, you know, violence causes trauma and trauma causes violence. And uh, it's been even a personal reflection for me growing up in a family, in my own personal family, growing up where there was violence and there was poverty and there was uh, uh, many social determinants that m my own family uh, um, experienced. Uh, and growing up in that environment, it's, it's almost like you don't have any choices. There's this conditioning uh, of the environment. And, um, you know, there were five, of, uh, five kids in my family, and we all went into different directions. But I think when we eliminate some of the opportunities and, and we have these food deserts, we have these uh, lack of opportunities for uh, economic opportunity for young people, uh, there are many other choices. And sometimes they are, aren't even considered choices in the family. It's just really about culture and where we're headed. And um, even my brother headed down that, down that pathway, now serving a 97-year prison sentence. Uh, for behavior that we didn't catch very early on in school, and um, he had a gun in his hand at the age of, of uh, at the age of ten years old, and so children shouldn't have guns in their hands. And so, um, you know, for me, I had some different outlets um, while living in the same household. Trauma is an individual experience, and so, not two no no two people will ever experience trauma the same way. And so we can see this happening in communities across the U.S. and across the world where there's a different outcome. And so we have to really treat and focus on individuals as our perspective, and, and not just the collective, but individuals who make up the collective in our approach, our public health approach. And so that's that's why I, I really focus on a trauma-informed approach to really, to really, uh, to really support change and be and change in behavior from the inside out. And focusing on the individual also allows us to get to the action and what it is that we can do. Right? So there are so many of these problems. Violence certainly is one of them where the temptation is to say the problem is just too big. And there are too many other things that have to take place, right? Of uh, whether it's helping families, helping with poverty, with homelessness. I mean, there's a lot going on. But if we look at the individual, then it does seem like there, there's something that, that we can do. There are also policy changes that, that can take place as well. And um, I'm, in short time, I'll be asking all of you about some myths that we hear about gun violence. But I'd like to first ask Jen about um, when you think about gun violence, whether in Baltimore or in Maryland as a whole, what are some things that come to your mind? Um, what are some action steps that you think we should be taking that, that we haven't been? Uh, well, many of the steps that we can take um, would work in any of the states and all across the country. Um, I first got involved um, because I wanted to keep my family safe, and I, and I think that all families deserve to live in a world um, where, where they can walk down the street safely, uh, regardless of, of the neighborhood that they live. Um, and so when we started looking into different legislative policies, we started looking um, at public health research and evidence-based policies that would actually reduce gun violence. Um, no one in an organization is interested 
um, in banning guns or um, being anti-Second Amendment. We're looking at very, very simple, common sense policies that will save lives. Um, and the research has shown that through um, background checks, um, that saves lives, that prevents criminals, dangerous people, domestic abusers from gaining access to firearms. Um, combining that with handgun purchaser licensing um, has been shown to um, prevent that even more. Um, but the problem with Maryland itself is that we aren't an island and we can't do this alone. Um, we need to look at national policies and national um, legislative measures um, so that people across state lines aren't able to then bring the firearms back here. Um, each state, uh, the, the patchwork of loose laws that we have uh, state by state all around the country uh, aren't actually keeping us safe. Um, and so we need to look bigger than Baltimore and bigger than Maryland uh, to really effectively solve the problem. Speaking of these evidence-based policies that, that work or, or may not work, um, I'm, uh, I'd like to turn to Dr. Webster to speak about some of this. This is your research. Um, tell us about the research behind things like background checks or banning certain types of weapons. Sure. Well, as Jen just said, uh, we do have evidence that background checks coupled with a handgun purchaser uh, licensing system, uh, we have two studies out now uh, showing when that policy changes, you have dramatic reduction changes in, in uh, homicides, but importantly suicides as well. Many people don't appreciate that uh, suicides uh, with guns outnumber homicides with guns almost two to one in the United States. Of course, that's not the case in Baltimore City. But uh, many of these policies address uh, both aspects of the gun violence problem. Um, one thing I want to add to what Jen was mentioning and, and uh, the important point of other states impacting our own gun environment, but also even though we have some good laws in Maryland, we can actually strengthen them and, and how they're enforced so that they have a bigger impact. So um, I think we, we have, th this is not a simple problem and a simple solution won't do it. So. We need, we need better enforcement, and we need prevention programs like Safe Streets. Research I've done shows that that program can be incredibly effective in neighborhoods and, and really transform some of the most violent communities in, uh, in, in the city with dramatically uh, fewer people getting shot. And I'm inspired every time I meet our Safe Streets outreach workers. I hear their stories and what they're doing with their lives. I mean, if we are serious about um, giving people opportunity, if we're serious about re-entry, um, then we have to also look at the value that individuals are bringing to our society. Um, individuals who um, may have come from a different background, um, but therefore are the most credible messengers for, 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 um, for their work as well. It's the value that they're now bringing because we, don't, we can't see people as problems for us to, to, to deal with. Um, and Councilman Scott, um, actually before I ask you, I should remind our listeners to tweet us at hashtag Be More Health Talks. I've been tweeting Councilman Scott as we're, as we're speaking, and so you can tweet him as well. Um, but please call us, call our call number for questions to you, which is 443-615-0908. Councilman Scott, tell us more about the work that you're doing as part of the Public Safety Committee. What are some policies that you're looking to get passed, either at the city level, state level, or, or other level? Well, before we go, I just want to go back to Safe Streets and, and just hone that point uh, and talk about one in, in particular, so Safe Streets, Park Heights. So most of the workers for Safe Street, Park Heights grew up with me. We went to the same elementary schools, lived in the same neighborhood, played in the same Rexon, the same teams. And when we talk about all of the factors that contribute, there's only a few things that are different between myself and them which led to them going down a different path originally. And it's something that I talk about a lot as, as far as what policy and what investment we can make. Really, if you look at them and look at me, you can really get it boiled down to one. It's the family and culture life. And what, what we need to do, and this is something that, that I want to see us do more of, is to spend more of our tax dollars, federal, state, local, on organizations that 
build family strengthening training programs because a lot of the times mm -hmm. for a lot of these young men and women that's the difference imagine what baltimore would look like if we had a hundred center for urban families so just 20 or 30 or 30 of them so just to get that out the way as far as the public safety committee i think that well well i know uh, a big portion of my focus for for the next four years is going to be around around the Department of Justice, you know, Department of, Department of Justice stuff to make sure that that's going the right way. But also, I think what's important for me when we're dealing with the, the issue of violence, especially around the police department, we have to figure out ways to have them doing it unique, uniquely different things. It can't just be the same way that we have been doing it because clearly that hasn't been working. So what, what I want to see us do in policy and or practice is trying to figure out how do we link the police department with organizations like Safe Streets, like 300 Men March, that can have a greater impact on the, on that violence, so they're getting the bank more bang for their buck. But also in a policy in in a policy standpoint, we have to literally go back and look at every single policy that we have about the police department, and every single one of them has to be reconsidered because in order for us to even get to them dealing with the violence. First, we have to rebuild that trust that is broken in so many of our communities. And we can start with something as simple as having citizens on the trial boards. We can start with something as simple as how, where they're recruiting from, who they're hiring, who they're firing. All of that, all of that stuff is going to build into this because they play a big part in this fight against violence. But no one's going to, even today, no one's going to tell them what is happening in their neighborhood if that trust level is not there. So sometimes you have to repair the first illness before you can get to the greater one. And I think that that's something that we have to do and focus on moving forward. Because the truth is, is that and as a policy perspective, there's not much we can do to make the police department go out and do more about stopping violence. Because the nature of their, bus their business is reactionary. They respond to things. Being proactive is what we gotta get them to do. And I think the best way to do that is to figure out how to morph them and help them work with organizations like Safe Streets and all of those folks to deal with the people that we know are committing the violence. Mm -hmm. There are, unfortunately, so many myths about gun violence, and I'd like to ask Jen for your response to this. Um, versions of it have come through our Twitter feed, um, which again, I remind you, is hashtag Be More Health Talks. And here's a myth. Armed civilians make society a safer place. Do you agree with that? I'm assuming not. Uh, I do not agree with that. Um, I, I think that that goes along with a lot of the myths that you hear. Um, armed civilians would make us safer. Um, guns make us safer. Uh, and if that were true, um, the United States would be the safest country in the world. And yet we have the highest rates of gun violence in, in the well-developed, of all of the well-developed nations. Um, I, I think we need to um, re-look at uh, who should have these types of firearms that we're seeing on our streets. And the more civilians who have them without any sort of uh, check or, or to see if they're dangerous, um, that's actually increasing the violence that we're seeing. It's increasing the injuries. It's increasing the deaths. Um, in reality, it's preventing dangerous people from getting their hands on these weapons. Uh, and I think that even uh, when we saw the shooting that just happened in Dallas, um, there were people who were uh, openly carrying weapons, um, and they weren't a part of solving the problem. And in fact, they were actually making um, it harder for the law enforcement officers to track down who was actually committing uh, this crime. So more guns. Um, aren't going to make the streets safer, and we just have to make sure that um, the dangerous people are prevented from getting them. All right. What about um, uh, what about this next bit? And actually, I'm getting some statistics about this as well. I'm looking around the table. Let me know if this is true, that there have been zero mass shootings stopped by armed civilians in the U.S. in the past 33 years. For every time a gun is used in self-defense in the home, there are seven assaults or murders, 11 suicide attempts, and four accidents. And so it's important, as we are scientists and we're driven by data and evidence, to be able to articulate this. We, we've heard, and especially in light of the, um, the tragedies that have occurred um, in, in recent months, that mental illness is the primary cause of gun violence. And William, what, what are your thoughts about that, that, um, that misconception? 
Well, I think Jen laid out the case very well. I'll just agree with agree with that. Uh, and 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 you know when the New Freedom Report, uh, the President's New Freedom Report, uh, came from the Commission in 2003, it laid out some points that were you know st maybe startling for some, and and for some we were mired in it. But but just uh, one of the reports is one of the points that came from that report was that. Um, that the that the mental health system is fragmented, uh, very segmented in their in their work, and in, in integrating the systems and really focusing on how do we deliver systems to the same person because we're all safe, serve, serving the same person in different systems. How do we come together and focus on policies that really focus on serving the individual um, across the system with multiple systems and multiple multiple agencies, and all the while supporting uh, you know families uh, in their in their uh, struggles to. Uh, to address mental health um, issues. And so I think that that's an important piece for us. And also you see the advent of um, the crisis interventions team, the SIT, SIT teams throughout the country that's uh, you know, really led heavily, heavily by uh, Florida. Uh, a lot of the work in Florida and Virginia is being done around understanding some of the challenges in mental, uh, that, that we're having around mental health. But just to blame folks who are, who are, uh, who have, who are, who are battling with mental illness, uh, is not the direction to go. That is not where we need to go with this with particular issue. Uh, Jen? Yeah, and I also just wanted to um, add on that the majority of people who suffer from mental illness are actually more likely to become victims they of are. violence um, rather than perpetrating violence. And um, oftentimes you find that uh, mental health is used as a red herring, and people will say, we don't need to work on um, very, uh, very, you know, the, the foundations of. Um, of laws of for um, to prevent dangerous people from having guns, we just need to fix our mental health issue. Um, and of course, our mental health um, systems should be um, strengthened and they should be um, better. But that doesn't mean that we don't also need these um, very very reasonable gun measures. Um, and if you really do want to look at the mental health nature of gun violence, then you need to go back to what Professor Webster was talking about in terms of suicide um, and and uh, suicide prevention and making sure that people um, who are um, going down that road uh, toward depression and toward um, uh, thoughts of suicide don't actually have access to their guns. Um, and the majority of people um, who do commit suicide, uh, those guns are from their own residence um, or from a family or friend. Yeah, we know, you know, one-third of youth to uh, over the 100, 100 suicides throughout the country that happened, that one-third are, are youth and young people. So we know it's a very prevalent issue um, in the family. You know, I, you know, we talk about the numbers all day long, but, you know, it's the personal reflection that I have uh, growing up with, you know, trauma, you know, watching violence in my neighborhood, going through the mental health system. I was hospitalized over nine times to be able to focus on it. Um, in a broken, very broken system in the mental health system, uh, tried to commit suicide at 13 years old, and here I am, you know, so we know that healing is possible. We know that route happens in a broken system, uh, so we do know that we have to fix that. We also have to address those parallel issues that are happening around gun, and I think the message around gun control is a very harsh me message, yes, for some to hear, and so I do really want to focus on gun safety as a real issue for us in, in our homes, in our communities, that gun safety is as important and to focus on what we can do. And you know, I just think back to a trauma-informed approach. The three, three, uh, the three triggers, three, three most common triggers of, uh, are uh, the feeling of loss of control, uh, a power differential, and uh, the lack of predictability. And when you talk about taking people's guns or controlling guns, you know, that can be very difficult for somebody who's, who's had their gun as protection in their home. So I'm not making an argument that you could have guns, but I will say that that, that it's been a testy subject for many people about that fear. But at the same time, there are people that do not need to have guns in their hands. And, um, and um, you know, that's, that's an important, important thing to put out there. I would just add, add to that. When we're talking about this, it, it, this has to be like a national discussion. And we're going to get to the point, we always get to this point about people and saying Second Amendment right to people to have their guns and et cetera, et cetera. But in the sanctity of that and the Constitution, but is that more important than the lives of American citizens? It seems to be, because every time one of these incidents happen, we talk about those changes that need to happen, and then a few weeks go by and we forget about it, and, we, and when someone brings it up, it's like, well, we can't do anything to change 
if that was the case, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you because guess what? I would still be enslaved. So we know that things have to change and we have to start to have those conversations. But also when we talk about gun violence, it's something I actually wrote in an editorial for The Hill recently. There's nothing stopping, you know, the federal government from declaring innocent violence in cities a homeland security measure. How much money does this country spend in rebuilding cities across the globe? But when you look at federal dollars as far as coming into our inner cities and helping our own, we do very little to what we could mm -hmm. do. And we have to have that serious discussion as well if we're going to start to change some of these things that, because the states and localities can't do it alone. I, I just, this is Daniel. I want to just uh, briefly interject. Uh, um, there, there's no choice between um, adhering to the Second Amendment and addressing some real weaknesses in our laws that enable people to have guns who shouldn't have them. It is a complete misinterpretation of the Second Amendment. The courts have been pretty clear on this. So if we're not a ban is, uh, under the current Supreme Court rulings, out of the question with respect to the Second Amendment, but most of everything else that we're going to be putting on the table and discussing, uh, for the most part, it, it's, it's not an issue. Uh, it, it is a distraction. We can do this. It is a matter of political will. You know, if I can ask, and this is a version of this question came through through our call-in number, um, and I'll direct this back to, to, uh, to Dr. Webster. There seem to be a lot of polls that show that Americans agree with everything that we're saying here. I mean, these are common sense measures. So if so many Americans agree, what, why is it that the national conversation isn't going beyond the sad stories that we hear, which are moving, and I'm glad that there's always this outrage, but after outrage comes what? Why is right. that happening? So I'm, I'm not surprised at the question because honestly, virtually any time I talk about this issue, I get that, some version of that question. Um, there's two parts to the answer. One part is sort of a simple part, which is, special interests, uh, whether it's guns or tobacco or whatever it is we're talking about, have an undue influence on policy. It's, it's a weakness of our democracy, uh, but not something that we can't address with appropriate mobilization. Secondly, I think the reason we don't move forward is that, uh, and, and I think this is quite intentional on the gun lobby side, is that they change conversations about what we need to do from a policy and public safety perspective to largely a cultural debate about whether guns are good or bad. And completely the conversation changes as opposed to how do we solve this problem, it, uh, adhering to Second Amendment, but still making our country, our community safer. So um, I believe, well, one other point, briefly. The vast majority of gun owners want our laws to be stronger to keep guns from people who have demonstrated they are too violent and dangerous to have them. When we have conversations and approaches that respect them and bring them into that conversation and say this is not a cultural battle, we're trying to keep others safe, I think we will have very different gun policies and much lower levels of gun violence. Yeah, I, I totally agree with what he's saying. I would take it a, a step further. I mean, it gets to fear-mongering is what, 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 what happens. Fear-mongering, especially when you, when you look at it from this lens, and this is something that people often don't like to talk about, when we look at especially handgun violence, uh, the face of handgun violence in this country is me. And when we have a, a culture in America that blasts out to the world that anyone that's young and black between the ages of 15 and 30 is inherently violent, it's going to kill you, it's going to rape you, etc. When you start to talk about changing that, that's the thing that gets pushed to the front. And people forget that that same very culture has a lot to do with young people just willingly going into their life because they don't have parents because of all the other health issues and things going in the neighborhood. And when we get to that, we, 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 people just give in because of fear. And their fear, their fear that this is so true, even though statistically I'm a lot more likely to be 
prey than predator, but people don't deal in numbers. They deal in what they see, and what they see in our country is that culture. And, and when you put that with the fear-mongering that people do, when these cons- discussions come up, people just retreat to what they know and what they think is safe, and that's owning a gun or ha- anyone being easily able to buy a gun in our country. Uh, and I, I also think that part, one of the most genius things that uh, the special interest groups of the NRA has done is made this issue seem controversial. And this issue actually is only controversial in Congress. Um, and when you actually have a conversation with anyone else in the United States, um, including gun owners, uh, and you actually stop talking about an overarching umbrella of gun control, and you start to stop talking about specific policies and specific issues, um, so many people would be surprised about what you can actually agree upon. Um, for instance, I was just down in Florida visiting my relatives, and um, I was meeting a, 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 a new family friend, and I guess he had heard uh, that I uh, work in gun violence prevention, and rather than say hello to me, uh, he uh, dropped a card on the table, which was his concealed carry permit, um, and I think he thought that I was going to have a debate with him, and I wasn't. I said, you know, I'm, you ha- have a right to own a gun for your protection. You are more than welcome as long as you've passed a background check and you have gone through the process to get that permit. Um, but don't you think that everyone should have to go through a background check? And he said, yes, of course. Um, and as we started talking about each individual policy and issue, we agreed on almost every single one. And I think that that's happening over and over and over again. So. Um, once our leaders are able to um, step back and, and vote with the people and what the people want to do to protect Americans' uh, public health and safety, then I think we're going to start to see real change. So I'd like to hear how you all might recommend that our listeners take action in this. I mean, certainly voting is important, speaking up is important. That's the advice that we give about every issue. But get into a bit more depth about what you've seen to be effective. What is the language that might be effective? What, what is the terminology that's effective? If special interests have so much power, undue or not, what can the average citizen, what can each person do today in terms of how we speak out and take action? Who wants to take that one? Uh, I'll, I'll say one, well, it's, it's a, just to say the obvious, which is you need to be engaged, you need to be mobilized, this is an important issue, and you shouldn't think that it's too difficult, it's too politically difficult. Uh, That is why we haven't moved forward. Um, When the public does engage on this, change can and will happen. Um, The other thing, I think, in terms of how you go about that, is you do not fall into an easy trap of saying guns are bad and and starting to point the finger at gun owners. That's precisely what the the opponents of or, or the, those who want the status quo of weak gun laws want. They they want that. So be thoughtful about your language. Be respectful of gun owners and find common ground. And that that's the most Im- important point. And, and have conversations of the nature that, that Jen just uh, described in her, in her own family. Um, but, but you have to let policymakers know this is your priority. They hear from uh, gun enthusiasts repeatedly. They do not hear from the vast majority of people, including gun owners, who want our, uh, our communities to be safer and are completely okay with reasonable regulations and oversight so that guns don't get into the wrong hands. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, and that, those are great points. And I also, also add that, you know, the conversation is very different on the streets where I come from. You know, this is a 30,000 feet level discussion um, we're having today, at, you know, to some degree, you know, when we're talking about, uh, you know, my 15-year-old you know, cousin who's walking in the street trying to protect himself or, or you know, who, who may have a gun that's unregistered. Um, I remember being a teenager having a gun that was unregistered in my hand. It was very easy to get. The conversation wasn't about how do I vote? How do I try to figure those things out? Those things are important. Uh, and 
you know, the conversation is very different, having, having that protect yourself on the street. So I think the conversation in, 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 in some communities are geared toward, you know, how, how can I create a safer environment for, for, for my family? How can I just get to school and make it to school? How do I actually, how do I stay safe in my own home? Because the person who I'm living with, who's supposed to be protecting me for, from danger, it's the person who's also bringing the danger. The conversations are very different. How do you decipher you know, what's good, bad, right, wrong, or dangerous when the person who's bringing the danger is the person who's supposed to be keeping danger from you, the person who has a gun in their hand, the person who is protecting their home. And whether it's registered or not, this is what we do to protect our home. And so this is a real discussion that we have to have in many different places, and it's very honorable in the different places that we have it, but we have to honor those discussions that are happening when we're talking about our young people who are 15 to 24 who are victim to gun violence that they care less about a vote. If they can't even get out of their homes to vote, why vote? You know, so it's a very difficult conversation, but we have to create those environments and these public health discussions, that safer environment. And that's what we're doing at the health department, really focusing on public health approach. We can create the, so that we could, we could support places where we have great options for food and, um, you know, securing a place where kids can get to school um, in a very safe in a safe way and I think we're doing that here we just continue to do more of continue to do more of that and really support programs that do that and safe streets also does a lot of that relationship building as you mentioned council member uh, relationship building family and creating that environment outside of just your you know your blood family or your traditional family yeah, I would just add, I think that what they both said is, is, is critically important is it, we have to be able to have this conversation in every section of our society. The conversation that I'm going to have with Dr. Webster is going to be a lot different than a conversation I'm having with a young man on Milton and Billow at 12 o'clock at night. It's going to be very different. And what I think is we have to do is make sure that we know that they're equally important. You know, when, I'm, when I have on my 300-minute march hat, it's about changing the culture in the neighborhood around street and disputes and knowing that, listen, disputes are going to happen, but disputes do not have to end up in the loss of life or someone being severely injured. And that's what we're, what we're doing there. And that's why we have started to uh, renovate and build a new community center where we're gonna try to focus on all the health aspects. We're gonna teach people how to be fit, teach them how to eat, teach them how to protect themselves without, without violence make sure that they're educated so that we can deal with the violence in it in its totality and i think that when we talk about people have to be we don't hold our especially those who can have the greatest impact on gun policy we hold especially in looking at it from baltimore point of view we don't hold our congressional and even our state folks to the same standard that we hold our city folks in fact as a city council person i will tell you that Oftentimes, people hold city council members and the mayors responsible for things that we're not even responsible for. They're uh, out of our control, you know. For example, perfect example is the school system, which we have no authority over. So what we have to do is hold these folks accountable. The same way that you hold me accountable for your trash not being picked up, that's what you have to do for these Congress people and the folks in D.C. because they respond to pressure. The only reason why these things come up, the only reason why these items are being discussed, the only reason why Black Lives Matter is being discussed on the floor of Congress is because of pressure. And that's what folks have to do in order to see the change. And the pressure is hard. Yeah. We talk about in public health all the mm -hmm. time how there is no face of prevention. It's very difficult to talk about the value of something that didn't happen, mm -hmm. that we prevented from happening. There's a saying about public health that Dr. Karen DeSalvo, the Assistant Secretary of Health, says frequently, which is that public health saved your life today. You just don't know it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the same thing for everything that we do, for emergency preparedness, for um, getting kids immunizations, for gun violence prevention. I mean, these are all things that there is, a, there is an actual economic cost. There is an actual societal cost. But it, it's hard to have those people lobby for something that didn't happen. And yet it's those conversations that also have to, uh, to take place as well. Now, I'd like to ask, um, we've alluded to this, but what question has come up over Twitter? Again, tweet us at Be More Health Talks or call our call number 443-615-0908 about the steps that we should be taking, that we are taking, but also should be taking to ensure that children who are exposed to violence have access to comprehensive services. And I'd like to start with William to talk about some of the work that's being done in Be More for Youth our um, citywide blueprint 
um, to help in this regard, but tell us what what exists and also what more should be done. And I, of course, would love to hear from Councilman Scott after yeah. that as well. well. Thank you, thank you for the for that question. And and um, the report that uh, Finkelhor and, and his colleagues worked on. Um, um, study children's exposure to violence, a, a national comprehensive survey. Uh, over 61% of our children expo are exposed to violence daily. That's most of our children exposed to violence on a daily basis. And, um, and with Be More uh, Youth Collaborative, we have brought together many agencies and partners um, through our youth, youth violence prevention strategy to really focus on how do we, again, and you know, not necessarily completely integrate our system, but how do we continue to, to, build, to bridge the silos, not break them down, but, but, res, but, but respect the, the silos that are already existing and bridge the silos so that those services are connected so that we know about what's happening. One of the things, one of the examples that happened, um, our co-chair, uh, Shalise Wood, Wood, Williams, uh, so we formed a, a committee that focused on youth engagement, and it was one way to focus on how do we bring youth together from the Youth Commission and all of these different youth uh, um, youth outlets to be able to, to talk about what is out there, what can we do together to, to, to address issues in Baltimore. And so we're working together with the youth collaborative, uh, with, the, with the entire collaborative to be able to address that. Um, also, I know Dr. Webster also sits on our community uh, advisory board as well to talk about how do we support the effort to move uh, these programs ahead, but, but we need to bridge the silos. We need to talk to each other because there's a lot of segmented and fragmented work that's happening, but how do we do that? And that's something that's happening with our collaborative with the health department. And I, I would just say this is something that, that, that I um, would like to see us do as far as this is a little being reactionary, but when we have incidents of violence, right, what, what I would like to see us do is bolster the health department's budget a little because a lot of times we, we, for, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for, we forget about these, these you young people. You won't hear arguments right? from me or anybody mm -hmm. else no, around the no, table. So. <laughs> we, we, we forget about this. So I'm, I'm a young man and I, I'm shot in my home, right? And we oftentimes forget about the two kids or three kids that are in there. Immediately what I think should happen is immediately whoever is responsible that supervise on the scene for the police department should be able to notify the health department so that we have a trauma team dealing with these young people. Absolutely. We have, you know, even if it's referring and granting out to Roberta's house and all those type of people, so many of these, these young people don't get into those programs because one, in their community, in our community, African American community, community Dealing with mental health and dealing with your feelings is something that is shunned upon. Mm -hmm. But two, because a lot of times they don't know. There's a young man who I've known for a long time in my life who cleaned at City Hall, who his brother was murdered. And just, I knew, and just bumping into him, we were able to get him in Roberta's house, but he's still coping and dealing with that. But they, he's the exception to the rule. The rule is that they don't deal with it. And a lot of times those are the young people who who grow up to do that. But also, more importantly, looking at it from a, a preventative measure, what I would like us to do, we know through statistics as early as third grade, which young people are most likely to be the victim and perpetrators of violence. What would our city look like if we decided to invest, and let's just say the top 300 of them and their families from the time they're in third grade until the time that and turn 18, 19, 21 through family strengthening and training programs, making sure that we're there through with that family, following that family throughout the way, even if we have the pilot to show people something works that we know is going to work. That's what we should be doing because it's a different way to deal with, dealing with it before we get to that point. And that's what I think we should go. Well, let me ask Jen and, um, and Daniel about your thoughts for things that could be done in the city or maybe best practices that you've seen in, across Maryland or the rest of the country that we should be thinking about here when it comes to reducing gun violence and, and also improving our systems of care for our families and our children. So what, what I'll say is uh, what Baltimore could learn from, from other cities. I think that, um, well, on the policing side, there was a wonderful op-ed in the New York Times today from uh, police chief uh, Charlie Beck in, in Los Angeles and how they transformed the LAPD following a very similar type of report to what we just received in, in Baltimore. And it is very much a, much a, a partnership model of uh, police 
uh, with communities, with other city agencies like the health department, jointly addressing problems and partnership, they've created uh, much more trust between police and community, safer uh, communities. Their, their rates of, uh, of homicide are much lower than they were before they were having these problems. So I think we can learn from those kind of things. Safe Streets is a model program that has been shown to work in other places. But I think it's also uh, something that we shouldn't think of as um, not something that could be improved. I think we, uh, we can and should innovate from that. Right now, we've thought about Safe Streets mostly as here, let's try to help one small community with, how, uh, with its rate of gun violence, rather than think about um, how could this model and this approach and this orientation help larger parts of the city and really start to change things. So mm -hmm. uh, what I, my hopeful, uh, you know, when I look into the future here, I'm, I'm seeing uh, better uh, policing that is, that is uh, in partnership with communities. I'm seeing uh, programs like Safe Streets blossom beyond the small areas that they're working right now with more resources and stability. And I'm seeing um, better, better enforcement and, and, and actual gun laws. And, and most of those things, um, many of those things aren't as hard as they may seem now, because right now we're, we're not in a good place with gun violence. But uh, there have been great, um, uh, great success in, in, a, in a lot of these different realms that, that show that these things can translate to much less violence and really a, a different kind of uh, city. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Jen? Uh, so one of the biggest things that we need to decide um, as a city is that um, the gun violence rate that we're seeing is too much. And I think all entities need to make that same decision and come together. Um, so at Marylanders for Gun Violence, we're going to be trying to work with a coalition. We work with Professor Webster. Um, and we are working with the Baltimore Police Department. Um, we're going to be working with the mayor's office. Um, we're going to be working with the city council. Um, our members are going to, um, over a long-term system, um, start working with judges and create some sort of a, a court watch system where we can make sure that judges are actually um, you know, sentencing uh, uh, illegal gun possession offenses. Um, we all need to make sure that we are pr prioritizing uh, gun violence reduction as a whole. Um, this is something that not only affects families, but this is affects businesses in Baltimore City, um, and even building up a, a type of a business coalition uh, where people are going to work to make sure that uh, their streets are safer because uh, it, it, it works to improve all of Baltimore. Um, and I also think that you know uh, violence prevention is a holistic effort overall, um, and of course it's um, this is something that our organization can fix, but um, making a priority for education, because the more you invest in education, the more the fewer people will um, turn to crime, um, and the fewer people will be able to have uh, education and job training to um, have a different choice and a better future. Yeah, I, I completely agree, and I, I think what's been said has just been great, because uh, one of the things that we're focusing on in our office is focusing on victim services, uh, really responding to the events that are happening, not just as a shooting response, but responding to the effects, responding to what's happening in the family and just broadening that out. Um, I came from the D.C. area, and so and, and one of the things we had there was the D.C. Victims Assistance Network. All of the grantees for victim services uh, convened. And I think that this city could benefit from convening all of victim services to be able to say, you know, when we have a case that we can talk across the board in terms of who we can support. A DC victim has a DC victim hotline. So we'll be looking at um, other, kind of other cities, other states, and what they're doing to be able to say, how do we bring victim services together here? Because there is a gap in victim services in terms of, in terms of understanding who the players are. And I think that the health department has a role to be able to, to, to convene that, to be able to focus on how do, we, how do we bridge any gap that we have in terms of how do we support victims of gun violence, victims of domestic, domestic violence, victims across the board. And so we're, we're focusing heavily on that.
Thank you for bringing us full circle also to our uh, very beginning. It's actually um, getting towards the end of our hour, which I think has really flown by as we heard these incredibly eloquent speakers and leaders in our city. We talked today about violence as a public health issue, specifically gun violence as a public health issue, how it is a disease that spreads from person to person, how there are solutions that are possible, and how just like other health issues that have social determinants along with it, violence is also tied to trauma, it's also tied to poverty, it's also tied to so many other aspects of our, of our communities, and, um, inner, and um, our solutions then have to be at the level of policy and community, but also at the level of the individual and their networks as well. We discussed too how stories are not enough. It's important for us to talk about the stories, but we can't just do that. And I want to read you a quote that I heard from Senator Cory Booker, um, who said that we should not let our inability to do everything undermine our, our determination to do something. So don't let your inability to do everything undermine your determination to do something, which I think is uh, what encapsulates our work here, that there are common sense policies that we need to continue to advocate for because we know that we're coming across some um, significant barriers when it comes to lobbying, uh, lobbying and, and money, but there are common sense policies that are, uh, that are supported by the majority of Americans who, if we should have a conversation one-on-one, -on -one, we'll see that we're not so far apart at all. We talked about how the um, investment in our families is, is critical, that we have to invest in our community and our families because ultimately that is what's going to give opportunity and prevent violence from occurring as well. So let me end today in our Be More Health talk with one last, um, one last quote which came after, um, after the um, sit-in by our um, Democratic members of Congress. Um, during the uh, during their last session, in response to getting gun uh, gun legislation um, uh, introduced, and Representative John Lewis, who is a great person, civil rights leader, talked about how there is good trouble and bad trouble. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here: bad trouble and good trouble. And good trouble is when we stand up to injustice. That is what we do here at the Baltimore City Health Department. That is what our leaders and our partners do. We stand up to injustice. We strongly believe that public health is a powerful social justice tool. And we're glad to have our amazing, um, our amazing leaders come together um, once every two weeks, every month or so, discuss these multiple issues. And we hope that you'll join us next time at Be More Health Talks to, uh, to discuss our citywide efforts to reduce health disparities. I wish to thank our guests for joining us today um, to invite everyone to join us next time for Be More Health Talk. That's going to be Friday, September 23rd, where we'll be discussing Healthy Baltimore 2020 and the blueprint for health that we have set up. Um, and last but not least, I'd like to acknowledge our amazing team here at the Health Department, those who have helped to produce this latest episode of Be More Health Talks. Um, Kelly Eastman, who was formerly a Baltimore Corps Fellow, now is our Director of Special Projects. I'd like to also acknowledge Jen Offo, uh, Kathleen Goodwin, Colby Sangri, Katie Howard for all their hard work. And um, thank again our guests for joining us for this episode of Be More Health Talks.